Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Again, and welcome to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. I'm Shannon Riley, and it's my pleasure to have you joining me here on KCEF Digital Radio 785 Live, 785.com. Uh, once again, my name is Shannon Riley. I am a Shakespeare fanatic, and I come to you every Sunday at 8 and 8 to tell you a little bit more about the Bard on Avon and uh, Bard of Avon. And uh, share some fun facts and some great stories, and hopefully uh, somebody wants to listen. I have a mother out there somewhere. So, um, I always start off, first of all, by uh, giving you the Shakespeare quote of the day. And the Shakespeare quote of the day is, Mad Men Have No Ears, from Romeo and Juliet, Act 3, Scene 3. If you are a fanatic like myself, sometimes you just cannot hear anything you don't want to hear. Little careful reminder that it is November here in uh, Kansas and uh, election time is right around the corner. Please vote. Please, please, please vote. And remember, madmen have no ears, so don't get any political conversations on the way. Uh, my book today that I wanted to tell you about is called, it's perfect for today's topic, um, and it's called Shakespeare and Company by Stanley Wells, published in 2006. It really examines um, Shakespeare's relationship with his fellow actors, uh, fellow playwrights. It goes into a great deal about uh, Christopher Marlowe. As a matter of fact, I, I, I believe, as, as Mr. Professor Wells does, that um, uh, had there been no Marlowe, there'd be no Shakespeare. So there, there was a great deal that Shakespeare learned from Marlowe, and um, there's a great deal of friendship that the two of them had during their short time on Earth together. Um, so uh, it's a great book, a really easy read, and uh, I encourage you, if you'd like to learn more about his friends and neighbors and so forth and his life, pick up Shakespeare and Company by Stanley Wells. Um and that's what my topic is going to be about today. I, uh, last time I came to you, I talked to you about Shakespeare's uh, Witches and Ghosts. But um, before that, I was leading up to Shakespeare arriving in London and what happened to him once he got there. And that's what I'm going to be talking about mostly today. But uh, I also want to give you a quick update. We have the uh, Lady Shakes, the female Shakespeare company right here in Topeka that we've been working with. Um, I'm very excited about these uh, lovely and talented people. And uh, they are in the process of incorporating into a 501c3. So I really hope to get that done. Uh, as they do, I'm going to let you know where their website is and where you can go and send money to support a great new Shakespearean uh, company here in the heartland. Uh, then, this is also very exciting to me. Every day I invite you to go and to my website, shannonjreilly.com. Please do do that. Go to shannonjreilly.com whenever you like. Click uh, there. You're going to find these uh, 
posts of uh, my uh, Shakespeare musings as well as my short plays, uh, some short films. Uh, I'd love you to go check it out, uh, take a look at what's there. And also, leave me your thoughts uh, of the uh, project that I'm doing here, of the pro uh, broadcast. Tell me anything you want to tell me about Shannon Shakespeare Shundays at shannonjriley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. And I'd love to hear from you. And I did hear from somebody. I heard from the lovely and talented Chase Hastings, who is a actor here in town, a young actor, who's... Ask me this question. What is your favorite film adaptation of Shakespeare? And please show your work. <laughs> Great student. Um, I do want to do um, a, a broadcast coming up on Shakespeare's films. There's an awful lot of films that have been out there uh, with Shakespeare. Some are great, some are not. I'd love to talk about these film projects and, and how they came to be. It's really interesting to see how Shakespeare's portrayed over the different decades and uh, different things that are going on in our life and how it affected those films. So I, I will be doing that. I also want to do uh, a broadcast about all the films that are based on Shakespeare, and you wouldn't know it to listen to it. And I will do that as well. But since I got asked by the great Chase, I thought I'd answer the question for Chase um, in by actually giving him the top three that I want you to go and look at. Now, the first one I want to talk about came out way back in 1944, and it's Laurence Olivier's Henry V. Now, what's remarkable about this, first of all, it was made right after World War II, uh, just like Henry V was used to build up the morale of the English people after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. Um, same thing happened with Laurence Olivier. He wanted to do this film to raise up the people and celebrate the fact that uh, Nazism had been defeated. But what makes this film even more remarkable is that for the first few minutes of the film, he shows you what Shakespeare's audiences would have seen. He does it all live on stage with an audience of groundlings screaming and yelling at the stage. And it really is a great representation of what you might have seen if you were in the crowd at the Old Globe watching a show. And then he slowly transitions into more contemporary filmmaking of the day. Um, but it's, it's really neat. It's really neat to go back and look at how Shakespeare's audiences saw and reacted to his play. So um, please uh, take a look at Laurence Olivier's 1944, Henry V. Now, my second favorite one, which used to be my favorite one, but my second favorite one is Franco Zaffarelli's Romeo and Juliet from 1968. This is a phenomenal film. A sweeping score. It won Oscars for Best Director, Costume Score, uh, Cinematography. It was it's a glorious, glorious film. And you really do feel like you're immersed back into the Renaissance period um, in, in Italy watching Romeo and Juliet play out. It is, it, it, it is really remarkable. Um, beautiful uh, costumes. Uh, everybody's hair is right. So many times you see a movie where they put it in period and they don't do anything about the hair but everybody just looks really really put together exactly as it should be and the, the film is sweeping glorious and and heartbreaking and i love the fact that romeo and juliet are both played by people of the right age very often romeo and juliet who are teenagers are played by people in their 20s or 30s this movie that there's two young, very talented stars. So check out 1968, Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. But my number one, and this could raise some eyebrows, is Roman Polanski's Macbeth in 1971. 
Roman Polanski, okay, hate him or whatever. He is a guy who accosted a woman and then uh, ran overseas so he couldn't face any jail time for it. That's kind of scummy. However, this Macbeth is amazing. It is, now, it, it was a critical failure. Um, it didn't make a lot of money. Uh, people were down on it because of all the violence and nudity. There is violence and nudity in the film. Um, and mainly because, not not that it's Macbeth, you, you're going to expect some violence with Macbeth. What is different, though, is that this was shortly after the horrible murders that took place at Roman Polanski's house where Sharon Tate was killed by Charlie Manson. And so to then follow up with a film like that really made a lot of raised eyebrows with a lot of people. But even though it was a commercial failure, it did win Best um, uh, Film by the uh, Motion Picture Board and of Review. Uh, they found it as I do, to be an incredibly strong and powerful retelling of the Macbeth story. So that's the 1971 Roman Polanski's Macbeth. Really excellently done. Uh, really well cut. Um, uh, I encourage you to see it. And I still think of it, you know, from time to time when I think see other Shakespearean films and how much they pale in comparison to certainly Franco Zeffirelli and Roman Polanski and their work on their movies. So, Chase. Thanks for sending me the question, buddy. Really appreciated it. And I hope you get a chance to check this out. Although you are underage, you'll have to ask your mom and dad if you can watch that Roman Polanski one. All right. Now, I also like to give you a fun Shakespeare fact for the day. And this fits in exactly with my topic. Because today we're going to be talking about the companies that Shakespeare kept. Um, and a theater company, particularly any theater company at that time, could not exist without the stamp of approval of some member of royalty. You had to have somebody from the royal family that gave you their mark of approval so that you could continue to work. Um, that's why all the companies had names like the Lord Strangers Men, the Lord Admiral's Men, um, the Queen's Men. Uh, all of these uh, performing companies had to be under the protection of some member of royalty. And that's why even today, when you go to produce a play or you want to use this piece of music in your film, you have to pay a royalty to do it. That's where that term comes from. So that's your fun Shakespeare fact for the day as we start talking about Shakespeare and how he ended up in London. Now, as I said before we got interrupted before, Shakespeare ended up in London around the late 1500s, about 1593. Uh, but how he got there, we just don't know. There's a lot of different theories. We do know that he was in Stratford-on-Avon to get married in 1582, uh, also there in 1583 for the birth of his child, Suzanne, and then again for the birth of his twins in 1585. But then we don't hear from him again until around 1593, 92, 93, where he shows up in London, and he's an established playwright by then. How did he get there? A lot of stories about what could have happened. Some people think that he went and, and taught up north, and uh, and that's very possible. He could have gone up north to teach for a while, but that doesn't explain how he then got into London and uh, to do theater. Some people have said that he went overseas or joined the military. Neither one of those things, I think, make any sense at all, and I just don't think that that would have happened. But... All signs point to the fact that he ended up in London doing theater by somehow getting involved in theater. And that's where the Queen's Men come in. The Queen's Men was, were the eminent theater company at the time. 
Uh, they were under the patronage of the queen herself. But they were really not performing for the queen very often. They were <coughs> excuse me, out on the road during that whole time, um, most of the time. And they traveled from village to village to village to village. And they really were the queen's propaganda troupe. They did things that were very popular, um, stories of England's greatness, um, and um, uh, were used really to boost the morale and maintain uh, the common folks' connection to the Queen in London. Now, the Queen's men had at the time a member of their company by the name of Richard Tarleton. And Richard Tarleton was the greatest comic in English, um, in the entire English um, pantheon of, of com uh, comedy players. As a matter of fact, when Tarleton died, which was in the late 1590s, it was a day of mourning for all of London. Uh, his a book was put together of his jokes and jibs and clever songs. Uh, it's told that the Queen, on several occasions, would have to force everyone to stop when the Queen's men were playing because she was laughing so hard from something Richard Tarleton was doing. She needed a moment to catch her breath. Richard Tarleton was that, that preeminent clown. Now, the reason why I bring him up is there's a certain amount, whether it's by chance or just the fact that he was well aware of Tarleton's um, comic genius, um, but shades of Tarleton's humor show up in his writing of his comedies, some of his characters, such as Bottom, such as uh, from Midsummer's Night Dream, or Dogberry. So there's a lot of possibility that he was ran into Tarleton at some time, and this is what could have happened. There's a thought that the Queen's Company were going to perform in uh, Stratford. Uh, but the day before they were to perform, an actor by was uh, name of William Nell was killed in 1587. He was stabbed by a fellow actor named John Town. Now, they were having a fight outside a pub and drew their swords, which they should not have done, should not have had in a pub, and William Keel was killed. Um, it was found that John Town was simply defending himself and he was not held responsible for the death of William Keel, but it did leave the Lord uh, uh, Admiral's men without a performing uh, company. No, I'm sorry, not Lord Admiral, <laughs> Queen's men, without one member of their company when they arrive in Stratford. Maybe, just maybe, they took on a new actor. And that's what Shakespeare first was, and continued to be during his entire time with the Lord Admiral's men, later the King's men, an actor first, a playwright second. So, is it possible that he ended up touring with the Queen's men after that? And that's how he got back to London. If so, he would have had immense training in theater on a heavy scale. Anyone who's toured with a theater company, or a band for that matter, knows that when you're going night after night and performing and performing, you learn a lot, and you learn it fast, and then you learn it on the fly. And that's exactly what might have happened with William Shakespeare. And he found himself back in London. Now, he didn't stay with the Queen's Men. There's no real evidence that he ever was a member of the Queen's Men. But he did join the Lord Admiral's Men. And this was a company that was created on the spot, uh, with Shakespeare involved, and some of the theater's greatest performers, it was kismet. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that after this break. So don't go away. Remember, this is Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, and stay barred to the bone. <laughs> 
And we're back. Hello once again. This is Shannon Riley from Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KCEF Digital Radio, 785 Live, uh, 75Live.com. Thank you all for coming back. I hope you're having a good day. And um, I'm going to continue on now talking about Shakespeare in this episode five I like to call The Company Will Keeps. Now, um, as I mentioned before, it's possible that Shakespeare could have come to London uh, with the Queensmen. So why wouldn't he stay? Well, fact is that the Queensmen was a very large company. It was twice the size of normal companies. And it simply didn't need that much help, particularly once you get back to London, you could get any wealth of actors who you could hire and move on if you needed somebody. So let's say Shakespeare lands in London and he now is without a home and without friends and without a company. So he lucks out, and I do mean lucks out. Shakespeare comes across a group of actors who used to be a part of a group called the Lord Strange's Men. Sounds weird, I know. But the Lord Strange uh, had died, and they were found themselves without patronage, and uh, were looking f- to start a new company and new patronage under Lord Chamberlain, who was in- interested in taking them on. Some of these people became the rock stars of what theater was an Elizabethan London at the time. The Lord Admiral's men, first of all, had the coupling of the Burbage family. Richard Burbage would go on to play all of Shakespeare's biggest roles, Hamlet, um, Romeo in, in Romeo and Juliet, um, all of the romantic leads, Oberon. He played all those big roles. But he was also, happened to be the son of of uh, John Burbage, James Burbage, and his uh, brother was Cuthbert, (laughs) Cuthbert Burbage. It was hard for me to say. James Burbage built the first structure for live theater performances outside of London. Had to be outside of London because you couldn't have live theater performed inside London unless you were a company of children players, boy players. Shakespeare talks about these groups in in Hamlet, as a matter of fact. It's a very weird thing, but there were boy players who did very adult roles uh, and adult stories in London for people, but only played by children. So James Burbage builds his first theater outside of London on land he rents called The Theater. And many theaters follow. Theaters start popping up all over the place in that part of uh, England. You started to see the rose, the uh, curtain, um, a lot of theaters being built and traveling companies now coming there to perform. And it was popular and the diet was very, very strong. Matter of fact, during Shakespeare's time, they would do roughly around 26 different plays a year, performing them and then shutting down and putting up a new one and shutting down. But 26. And of those 26... About half of them were new plays written during that time. The diet was so heavy for theater. People were dying for more and more theater, and Shakespeare couldn't have landed in London at a better time as an actor and a playwright, especially if he joined up with the Burbages because they were building their first theater. Now, there's an interesting story about that theater, uh, which I'll come to in just a little bit, but it started with the Burbages, and then you had Will Kemp. Will Kemp was a comedian. He played all of Shakespeare's best clowns, from Dogberry to um, uh, uh, Falstaff. Falstaff was a very big role for him to play, uh, Bottom in in, um, Midsummer's Night Dream. Will Kemp, if anyone inherited the title of England's comedian after Tarleton, it was Kemp. 
he was became immensely popular. And fast forward to 1594, by that time, they also had people like uh, Henry Carey, who came and joined their company. And they had um, uh, two young men who joined their company by the name of uh, George Byrne and... Um, 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 I'm blanking on the name. Uh, Hemmings and Condell, two young actors who, without Hemmings and Condell, we wouldn't know who uh, William Shakespeare is, which I'll also talk about in a moment. Now, these actors all formed together and created what we would call a co- cooperative state. They had bought in shares. And everybody had to buy in to become a shareholder of the theater company. That meant you had a certain job you were going to do. You were going to be responsible for that job. And you were a part of the company. And you would share in the profits of that company, as well as the liabilities. This became a very lucrative business. Shakespeare became a wealthy man doing theater and sent a lot of money home to his family. Ended up buying the second largest home, as a matter of fact, for his wife to move into. So these companies would pop up. And suddenly become incredibly popular. And no one became more popular than Lord Chamberlain's men. Matter of fact, they became so popular, they performed for the Queen more than the Queen's men. Uh, And over and over again, the Queen would call upon her sweet Shakespeare to please write a new play. As a matter of fact, it's... According to legend, Queen Elizabeth asked Shakespeare specifically to write a new play featuring Falstaff, and that's why he wrote one of his original plays, The Merry Wives of Windsor, right for the Queen herself. So the company became incredibly powerful and incredibly strong. Uh, Now, other shareholders would come and go as time would go on. Uh, They had a guy by the name of Thomas Pope and uh, Augusta Phillips. But there came a time where there was a huge blow-up between Kemp and Burbage. Now, we're not really certain what might have happened. Uh, Stories do uh, attend that Kemp was getting a little big for his britches. He wanted a larger share of the proceeds. He wasn't getting it, so he left. He quit. And when he left the company, it was a huge blow to the company since he was the number one comic in London. Um, And he played Falstaff, which is one of their most popular characters, which is why in Henry V, when you get to Henry V, they mention that uh, Falstaff has died off stage. You don't even get a a death for him. They didn't even want to try to get anyone to replace Will Kemp playing um, um, Falstaff because they knew it was he was far too popular. Uh, funny thing about that is if you go back to that movie I said before from 1944 of uh, Henry V with um, uh, Laurence Olivier, that moment is brought up. They show how the crowd reacted when they learned that Falstaff had died off stage. They booed. Nobody wanted to see the end of John Falstaff, and I'm sure the company didn't want to see the end of Will Kemp. But there was a value to the fact that Will Kemp left. Well, that was because they were able to bring in a new clown, a clown by the name of Arn, Armin. Armin supposedly was very, very small. Um, some people have even said he was possibly a dwarf. But he had unbelievable pipes. The man could sing. And as a result, Shakespeare started writing more and more songs to accompany his plays. This is the man who would end up playing Festy. Uh, This was the man who would uh, uh, sing so beautifully that it caused uh, 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 women to swoon. So uh, there was a certain amount of of give and take that happened, but it brought in a brand new life to 
uh, the Lord Admiral's men and later to become the King's men. Now, I did want to tell you a quick story about the Lord Admiral's men. They were known for being professional. Uh, they took shares. There was only eight principal shareholders at any given time, I believe. But they would have hire various other actors to fill out other roles because Shakespeare's uh, plays were very long and heavily uh, heavy characters. And their boy actors would have to be replaced from time to time because you can only play a girl for so long until your voice changes. So they'd bring in new boy actors from time to time as well. But they stayed relatively above the fray. Other theater companies were being arrested for open drunkenness, um, for wearing the wrong clothes in the street, which is a fact. You could not wear certain colors in the street, and some actors did. Um, so uh, uh, they, they were getting, they stayed above the fray for the most part until uh, Lord Essex came to them and said, I want you to do a play called Richard II, Remount Richard II. Now, the Earl of Essex got to understand, was once a favorite of Queen Elizabeth, but he fell in great disfavor. She had sent him to go and fight the Irish uprising. He went to go fight the Irish uprising, but he wanted to fight them the way he would fight normal people on a field. Irish didn't fight like that. The Irish were tenacious. They would um, hide in forests and jump out. They would ambush his men. They fought dirty, and there was no way he was ever going to win. So, he allowed them a certain amount of leniency, got them to sign a peace treaty, and came riding home in the middle of the night to claim his victory. He didn't even stay for his army to follow behind him. Elizabeth knew he was very popular, and when he came back, she was terrified he had come to try us to usurp her. But when he barged into the Queen's chambers late at night, saying that he had um, beat back the Irish and had a peace treaty in his hand, she sent him to bed and said, we'll talk about it in the morning. When she saw no army coming, she had him arrested, told him he had no right to sign any treaty and that uh, he had failed her. So he was sent home with his tail between his legs. So he goes and decides, I am going to overthrow that woman. I am going to become king of England. And he literally goes to... Uh, Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men, and says, I want you to do this play, Richard II, which starts with an uprising. And he thought he'd get that crowd worked up into a frenzy. He'd jump up on stage, demand that they march on uh, the palace and claim the throne for him. Well, he did just that. He jumped up on the stage at the end of the performance, whipped the crowd into a frenzy, and led them out into the street, got on his horse, and started riding towards the castle with this brabble behind him, that each mile, step after step, gets smaller and smaller and smaller as people lose their will, until finally Essex finds out there's practically no one following behind him, and his word of his treason had already reached the queen. Ran home and hit again, was dragged out, and eventually beheaded. All of Shakespeare's men, including Shakespeare himself, were arrested and thrown into jail overnight. The Queen is reportedly, as said, not my sweet Shakespeare. And, indeed, the next day they were released. They promised, uh, through every pleading that they could, that they had no idea what Essex was planning, and that this whole ridiculous affair was done when they simply were commissioned to remount an old play, Richard II. The Queen believed him, the army believed him, and they were able to go back to work. Of course, Essex was killed. Uh, so, the essence of Elizabethan life was just that. You lived at the Queen's pleasure. You died at the Queen's pleasure. 
It was a police state. It's a difficult world to live in. We don't even begin to understand how difficult it could have been. And yet, Shakespeare and his company moved on and celebrated their company for many, many years until eventually the English Civil War and the rise of the Puritans, which shut all theaters down. Of course, Shakespeare was long dead by that time. Now, the company itself might have changed from hand to hand from time to time, but when they became the king's men, right after the king took the throne, they really stepped it up. And that's when Shakespeare started writing his greatest plays of them all. He's, he wrote uh, uh, Macbeth at this time. Hamlet is written at this time. Um, um, uh, uh, Merchant of Venice. Um, so all of these really strong, powerful plays that suddenly were produced right at that period of when uh, the, the throne had gone to James the Sixth of Scotland, who became James I of England. And it's this period that I'm going to talk about next week as we look at the end of Shakespeare and how we even know who Shakespeare was and why, thanks to Hemings and Condal. Uh, so that's the topic of next week's. Again, I want to tell you, I really appreciate you guys tuning in. I hope you're enjoying these, and I want to hear from you. So please drop me a line or send me an email uh, through shannonjreilly.com. Uh, that's shannonjreilly, R-E-I-L-L-Y.com. I'd love to hear from you. And also, I really want to thank everyone here at KSEF. Digital Radio, 75 Live at 785.com. There's a lot of great programming here, not just Shakespeare, although I'm sure you're happy with the Shakespeare. But um, check out some of the other wonderful programs that they have on, and I'll see you next Sunday for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday as we enter the final years of Shakespeare's life. Have a great day. Remember to vote. Please, please remember to vote. And as always, stay barred to the bone.